Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hum audible only to me? No, no. It's coming from that thing Maybe I created a problem out of nowhere. But it's constant enough. Maybe it'll just recede. And are we waiting for someone to try to do it, or should I just start talking? <laughs> this is going horribly wrong, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what I was gonna, what we talked about doing is that I'll just read very little from the book. I'll read the epigraph and. Um, six paragraphs of this novel and then then we can talk. Thank you for coming. It's good to be here and an honor to get to be in conversation with Rachel. Is this about the right volume or am I yelling at you? Okay, great. So this is the epigraph. The Hasidim tell a story about the world to come that says everything there will be just as it is here. Just as our room is now, so it will be in the world to come. Where our baby sleeps now, there too it will sleep in the other world. And the clothes we wear in this world, those too we will wear there. Everything will be as it is now, just a little different. And I guess I'll say, just because it's mentioned very obliquely in this passage, that the narrator of this novel has a pretty serious heart condition, and also his friend Alex, who is mentioned, has asked for his help in getting her pregnant um, to be a sperm donor. An unusually large cyclonic system with a warm core was approaching New York. The mayor took unprecedented steps. He divided the city into zones and mandated evacuations from the lower-lying ones. He announced the subway system would shut down before the storm made landfall. Parts of lower Manhattan might be preemptively taken off the grid. Some speculated that the mayor, having been criticized for his slow response to a record-setting snowstorm the previous winter, was strategically overreacting, making an exaggerated show of preparedness. But his tone at the increasingly frequent press conferences seemed to express less somber authority than genuine anxiety, as if he were among those he kept imploring to stay calm. 
From a million media, most of them handheld, awareness of the storm seeped into the city, entering the architecture and the stout-bodied passerines, inflecting traffic patterns in the improved sycamores, so-called because they're hybridized for urban living. I mean the city was becoming one organism, constituting itself in relation to a threat viewable from space, an aerial sea monster with a single centered eye around which tentacular rain bands swirled. There were myriad apps to track it, the Doppler color-coded to indicate the intensity of precipitation, the same technology they'd utilized to measure the velocity of blood flow through my arteries. Because every conversation you overheard in line or on the street or train began to share a theme, it was soon one common conversation you could join, removing the conventional partitions from social space. Riding the end train to Whole Foods in Union Square, I found myself swapping surge level predictions with a Hasidic Jew and a West Indian nurse in purple scrubs. At Canal Street, the three of us were joined by a teenager whose back seemed smaller than the cello case strapped to whose body seemed smaller than the cello case strapped to her back. She explained that the doomsday hype was designed to evacuate Lower Manhattan so police could install bugs and other listening devices in every apartment. We stopped talking when a mariachi band composed of three men in their 20s, one of whom wore embroidered straight-cut muslin pants, struck up Toda Una Vida. It was hard to tell if they played particularly well or if we passengers were in the glow of our increasing sociability particularly disposed to appreciate them or music generally. Regardless, there was an unusual quantity of pathos in the song, applause, than an unusual quantity of currency in the hat. Emerging from the train, I found it was fully night, the air excited by foreboding and something else, something like the feel of a childhood snow day when time was emancipated from institutions, when the snow seemed like a technology for defeating time, or like defeated time itself falling back from the sky, each glittering ice particle an instant gifted back from your routine. Except now the material form of excitation wasn't ice. The air around Union Square was heavy with water in its gas phase, a tropical humidity that wasn't native to New York, an ominous medium. <clears throat> In front of the Whole Foods where Alex told me to meet her, it was a preposterous idea to shop at Whole Foods given that it was always already mobbed, but they were the sole carrier of a tea on which Alex claimed to be dependent, one of her few indulgences. A reporter bathed in tungsten light was talking to a camera about a run on flashlights, canned food, bottled water. Children were darting back and forth behind her, stopping now and then to wave. Alex greeted me, and I noted to myself a difference in her appearance, an unspecifiable radiance, but as we began to push our way as gently as possible through the crowds, I realized the alternation was most likely in my vision, because everything remaining on the shelves also struck me as a little changed, a little charged. 
The relative scarcity was strange to behold, and what were typically bright aisles of superabundance, there were now large empty spaces, especially among prepackaged staples, although plenty of outrageously priced organic produce still glistened in the artificial mist. Alex had some kind of list, storm radio, hand crank flashlight, candles, various foodstuffs. They were out of almost everything on it at this point. We didn't care and circulated through the vast store on the current of other shoppers, shoppers who seemed unusually polite and buoyant despite the presence of police near the registers. I want to say I felt stoned, did say so to Alex, who laughed and said me too, but what I meant was that the approaching storm was estranging the routine of shopping, just enough to make me viscerally aware of both the miracle and insanity of the mundane economy. Finally, I found something on the list, something vital, instant coffee. I held the red plastic container, one of the last three on the shelf, held it like the marvel that it was. The seeds inside the purple fruits of coffee plants had been harvested on Andean slopes and roasted and ground and soaked and then dehydrated at a factory in Medellin and vacuum sealed and flown to JFK and then driven upstate and bulk to Pearl River for repackaging and then transported back by truck to the store where I now stood reading the label. It was as if the social relations that produced the object in my hand began to glow within it as they were threatened, stirred inside their packaging, lending it a certain aura, the majesty and murderous stupidity of that organization of time and space and fuel and labor becoming visible in the commodity itself now that planes were grounded and the highways were starting to close. Everything will be as it is now, just a little different. Nothing in me or the store had changed except maybe my aorta, but as the eye drew near, what normally felt like the only possible world became one among many, its meaning everywhere up for grabs, however briefly, and the passing commons of a train and a container of tasteless coffee. That was great. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I realized I want to have my book, just to make this more official. Um, <clears throat> it was wonderful to hear you read that passage. Um, I really love this novel so much. I just want to tell those in the room who haven't read it yet um, how much I admire it. it uh, I've read it a few times, which may not become apparent in my inexact recall of details and structure. But each time I've read it, there is more there in the book. And it seems to start to enfold its own themes and ideas and repetitions and echoes so that it's become like this organism. I think I, for different reasons, I've read it three times now. And I have more esteem for it each time. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Um, so okay, let's just start at the very beginning with the epigraph, since you read it. I wonder if I need to lean toward the microphone or if it could just lean toward me. OK. Um, the epigraph is interesting for many reasons. Um, but first of all, for me, it's interesting because it's actually Walter Benjamin. Um, but it reads like a, an authorless proverb um, 
you know, attributed to the Hasidim. Uh, and it's not just Walter Benjamin, but it's Walter Benjamin, it, apparently, as he said something to Ernst Bloch, and then was popularized, at least with my generation, in a book that Giorgio Agamben wrote called The Coming Community. So all of those things are nested into that epigraph when I read it. I don't know, do you, can, do you, kinda, do you wanna comment on that or I can make it into a more? Well, just to say that that, I mean, that, that, that notion of language that's found and has a kind of complicated composite choral authorship comes back in a lot of different moments in the book with like the Reagan speech that's so central to it where the, the, the Reagan speech after the Challenger disaster that was of course written by Peggy Noonan but that involved this poem from this Canadian poet John Gillespie McGee that was kind of plagiarized from an archive of other poets so I'm I like the way you describe it and I think that that, that kind of corporate language, corporate in the sense of more than one person, not in the sense of advertising, comes, comes back at, a, at different moments in the book. But with the epigraph, it, it seems, uh, for me, it's quite, in a way, it's profound because it, um, all these different names that I mentioned, you know, Giorgio Agamben and Walter Benjamin and maybe some, to some degree, Ernst Bloch, but it's like every philosopher and thinker of the 20th century really, uh, of the historical materialist discipline, I mean, I don't care about um, that other kind of philosophy, uh, the analytical kind, um, has wanted to form a conception of time that is not linear time. Yeah. And um, it's one of the things about this book that has become more and more um, uh, explicit for me in each reading. Uh, so it's like there's, we don't live in linear time, do we? <laughs> no, I'm, no, and uh, or, or well, I mean, Benjamin would probably say that we do live under capital and linear time, this empty time of accumulation, which is just one thing after another. But the challenge is to imagine a conception of time in which the past, instead of being abandoned, could be redeemed. But I mean, but people also live like time is shaped and experienced by humans according to memory as well. So like a rock exists in linear time, but it cannot experience that time, right? But people exist in linear time, but they don't experience time as linear. For instance, with a hurricane that the narrator in the passage you read, he's getting ready for Irene, right? Mm -hmm. um, and his friend starts to take on a certain glow, I think, and it seems like what's happening is that everything looks a little different because you're about to possibly, maybe, probably inside of that maybe is a hopefully, take a time out from time. So that their experience is really shaped by eruption of event and much less so by the clock and the calendar day. Yeah, that's elegantly put. I mean, yeah, and that the book generally is concerned with the way the future inheres in the phenomenology of the present. Like the future is a, is a fiction that is what gives the present its texture. So your experience of the present shifts in relation to your imagination of the future. Yeah, so could you explain the title to people who haven't read the book? <laughs> well, it's, the, it's when um, 1004 is when lightning strikes the clock tower and back to the future powering the DeLorean. 
Michael Marty McFly's DeLorean. And, but then it's also um, in Christian Markley's video collage, The Clock, it's also the scene that is 10.04 in that collage. Um, and then both those works are in the, are in the book in, in various ways, yeah. Because I, I, I could be wrong, so you can correct me if I am, but I think uh, that the, the title um, is only mentioned once in the body of the text, and it's not in reference to the movie Back to the Future, which is mentioned separately, but it's mentioned in the context of this Christian Markley video, The Clock, and the narrator says something like, um, I wanted to get there in time to see the clock tower strike 10.04 in Back to the Future, but Alex couldn't catch a train in time, so it's like they can't arrive to see this moment when the past is supposed to recuperate the future, they don't even make it there. Yeah. I don't know. I'm assuming that was intentional on your part, or slightly ironic. Yeah, intentional. I don't know about ironic, but definitely, yeah, definitely in intentional. But but also just that it's not it's not real time. Like like it. 1004 isn't a real time. It's yeah. it's art time. It's it's art's imagination of um, a mechanism of uniting the past and the future. Yeah, you talk about this really uh, elegantly, I think, in terms of the Marclay video, the clock. I'm assuming you also saw. I did. I actually didn't see very much of it. Um, I was in Toronto. I couldn't ever wait out the lines in New York. There was no line in Los Angeles. I just want to say that there wasn't. But when I was in, I was in Toronto, and it was at the Powerhouse Gallery, and there was no line. But I actually didn't see. I couldn't. Um, I didn't see the part of the clock that he describes. I had to piece that together from other reports. But you could probably just find those. Uh, sections of films on YouTube or something. I, would I don't know. I, he seems really good at hunting down right. stray fragments of the clock. Um, I think he had an arsenal of assistants. Who he's got that. a lot of assistants. Uh, but, but I did see many hours of it yeah. and yeah, and, and found it very powerful. Well, I did too. I mean, the way you described it, I actually related to. Um, I, uh, yeah, I saw it here. I don't know if anybody in the audience went. It, they showed it at LACMA. And I was there for almost eight hours. And I think only a total of about 20 people came and went during that entire time. Maybe it was just an off day. Mm -hmm. But um, I, it seems like it's, it, it does commonly sort of get talked about. I mean, I didn't read a lot of the criticism of it. I mean, the, uh, you know, uh, the praise of it. It does commonly get talked about as, um, as, I think you say this in the book, as being a kind of triumph of of real time over fake time. And I didn't have that experience at all. The narrator in the book um, keeps checking his, or he goes to check his phone when the film tells you exactly what time it is uh, every few moments when there's a scene that shows a clock. Um, and I didn't do that, but I felt very addicted to the film. And I couldn't leave the theater because I wanted to see what was going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you're right, it's been described as the great triumph of the collapse between art, art and life because it's in real time and it's synchronous with the day. But in fact, when you, when you watch it, or I don't know, when it sounds like when we watched it, you feel acutely the difference between a minute, a cinematic minute, even if it's identi identical in terms of abstract duration to a lived minute. 
And that's why it seemed to me to be a real kind of triumph of fiction. Like instead of the kind of avant-garde dream of really making uh, art and life the same thing, it seemed to kind of protect a distance between the realm of the imagination and what was merely real. Yeah, your book does that quite a lot as well, I think. Um, I uh, have like an uncorrected copy of the book and was sent it earlier. And when Ben's people asked if I would do this event with him, um, I said yes, and I thought, oh, I've already read the book, so I probably have a bunch of notes in the back for my questions. And I had just written one thing. Maybe it's something that's in the book, and I think it has something to do with my read of it. Um, From Robert Bresson's little book, um, Notes to the Cinematographer, I just wrote, um, retouch real with more real. Mm-hmm. And it's all I'd written, and I was like, well, th- this doesn't give me much to go on for this skylight event, and now I'm trying to unfold it. And th- so I reread the Brisson book. I mean, it's a wonderful little book, and I don't know, I think people in Los Angeles maybe love it a lot because Green Integer published it, and Dennis Cooper's always been a big champion of that book as it relates or pertains to fiction and mm-hmm. art. And I read it again, and Brisson says something like, um, real plus fake equals fake. And he means that in a derogatory way. And then he says, fake plus fake equals real. And it's about this seamlessness of the fiction. And I was thinking with 1004, I'm sorry, this will be a little abstract for people who haven't read the book yet. But with 1004, there's a way in which you invoke the real in order to re-emphasize or support the fake. And you do it in many different ways. It's, and that's the organism effect of reading it. Like, There's a moment inside the New Yorker story, which is a real thing that you wrote and was published in that magazine. And it appears in the book, enfolded into the fiction of this narrator who happens to be an author. And inside the story, a relative, a relation, I think it's the father of the character in the story who wrote the story that's in the novel, <laughs> turns to him and says, are you, are you writing these days? And he says, nothing but this. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really incredible moment. But I, so I, in a way, I think Brisson is, it, what he says doesn't pertain to what you're doing because it's not so much about the real life of the person Ben Lerner sitting next to me at all. It's very much about these kinds of fictions that feel real in life. I'm putting that back. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I'd, I'd need to think more about the Brisson stuff, but I, I like how you put it. I mean, I think that the book is, the argument of the book, which is not an original argument, is that um, is that you know that fictions have real effects, and that's so you you know that that and and that f- that lived experience of course gets transposed into fiction, and that the boundary between them is porous, and so any um, any work of narrative that pretends otherwise that doesn't acknowledge the por- porousness of the boundary would be fake in a cer- in a certain way, right? So that. Um, I mean, I, I think, yeah, so I, th- the, the book, I mean, I'm interested in fiction less in the, like, the genre of fiction and more in the sense that fiction is a word for how we meaningfully organize the mess of reality, and so it's subject to change and is contestable and is unstable, and, um, 
I, so I want a fiction that that flickers or that moves between that. And I mean, I think of Brisson in a funny way. Like I, I think about his use of non-professional actors, and I was kind of thinking, like maybe I kind of use non-professional characters. He calls them models, right? Yeah. Well, and for him, it like culminates with a donkey, right? Like ultimately, he she casts animals because yes. they really don't know they're acting. But I think, I'm, but I, I, I think that there's a sense in which, in the instead of like the fiction of my writing having access to a round or thoroughly described character, I'm more interested in a depiction of character that acknowledges the kind of limits of the writing to be able to penetrate a personality. Right. I mean, well, the personality of the narrator is very full in the book, I would say. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, yeah, but it's the, but the effort, whether or not it's successful of the narrator, his kind of named effort is to empty himself out in a Whitmanic fashion at certain moments so that other stories and social forces can course through him. Yeah. I mean, it's an open question if that works for him. For the narrator or for Whitman? I think it definitely doesn't work for Whitman. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I don't think it works for the narrator. 